This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Dr. Harold Smith. Dr. Smith holds the appointment of Distinguished Resident Scholar with the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California at Berkeley, where he focuses on the impact of technology on foreign and defense policy. He received his PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, served as professor of nuclear engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and served as assistant secretary of defense in the Clinton administration. He serves as an advisor to prime contractors, think tanks, and national laboratories. Dr. Smith is a fellow of the American Physical Society and a commander in the Legion of Honor of France. He has twice received the highest honor granted by the Department of Defense for Civil Service, the Distinguished Public Service Award. Harold, welcome to our program. Pleasure to be here, Harry. Where were you born and raised? Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Born in a very small city to the southeast. Moved early in our our, uh, high school years to Bellevue, Pennsylvania, first suburb out the Ohio. A very solid middle-class suburb into a very solid middle-class family, which I should add right now was a strong Republican uh, bastion. And, and what got you interested in science and math? I think genetically it was always there. But uh, the uh, key event that sparked a love of mathematics that I have to this day was the, uh, the father of the girl I was dating. Uh, he happened to be one of the finest uh, high school mathematics teachers in the city of Pittsburgh. And I would take his very lovely daughter, Mary Lou, to uh, the movies. We did things like that then. And Mr. <laughs> Horner was waiting for me when we came home. All of that was quite normal in those days. And Mr. Horner knew that I did well in mathematics and had a few questions for me. And we would start to talk and talk and talk. And finally, Mary Lou went to bed. And Mr. Horner and I continued talking about mathematicians, mathematics. It was fascinating. So, so he wasn't interested in your intentions as much <laughs> as mentoring you in mathematics. That's exactly right. But my parents didn't see it that way. When I would arrive home from a movie date <laughs> at one in the morning, there was a lot of explaining to do. So then where did you do your undergraduate work and your Ph.D.? MIT, 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 all my degrees. And what, what did you major in as an undergraduate? As an undergraduate, I was going to be a captain of industry. So I started in business. I had a uh, Sloan National Scholarship, a very generous scholarship. Otherwise, I'd have never gone to uh, a place as prestigious as MIT. But I soon learned that mathematics was more important than accounting and shifted to the extent that time and the curriculum would allow to mechanical engineering with a physics option. And then in graduate school, you, you may, uh, what, was your, uh, what was your work there? The uh, Atomic Energy Commission, now the Department of Energy, uh, had uh, just initiated nuclear energy technology fellowships. 
I was fortunate to get one, and that supported uh, the three years that I needed to get the PhD in nuclear engineering. And what, what were your interests beyond physics as you were doing your dissertation work? I, uh, in preparing for my doctoral exam, I, everyone needs a break, and of course I did too. So I read uh, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. And uh, I did pass the doctoral exam, but I became fascinated with uh, Russian literature. And about the same time, the Boston Symphony Orchestra provided uh, very inexpensive tickets to their open rehearsals. And I began to uh, go to those, and a lot of Russian music was played. So I s developed a love of Russian culture, history, uh, literature. And then when I came to Cal, of course, I met Nicholas Rezanovsky, and I, who's, as far as I'm concerned, had written the definitive history of Russia. And I not only had read his history, but I had the great pleasure of meeting Nikki. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so, so in a way, you were preparing for a future that you didn't know yet would happen. And I'm talking now about the Russian part of your self-education. You're absolutely right. It was all serendipity. And, and then what was your dissertation on, and, and what was important in that dissertation that, that added another piece to this puzzle? Well, that's a very good question, because the jargon of the day, if one wants to describe something as uh, difficult, you say, well, it isn't rocket science, implying, of course, that rocket science is difficult. And in my case, the title of my thesis was The Dynamics and Control of Nuclear Rocket Engines. So I am not only a rocket scientist, I am a nuclear rocket scientist. But those fields, uh, to jump ahead as, as you did, uh, were extremely important and valued by the Russian elite, certainly the intelligentsia. So in the same sense as you said previously, it was a running start into... Uh, what, what, we, what the Russians like. And, and, and the, the, your, your work with the Russians will become very important shortly. But you also were uh, um, making use of the insights of a Russian mathematician in the work that you were doing? Yes. When I came to Cal, I continued work in dynamics and control of uh, interesting nuclear systems. And I, one, of my, one of the papers that I'm most pleased with is based on the theorems of Pontryagin, a blind Russian mathematician, early 1900s. And uh, his theorems allowed me to solve a problem that, uh, modestly, even Fermi and Wigner couldn't solve uh, analytically. They solved it with very clever engineering, and uh, that worked. But in this case, I optimized the situation, and I could not have done it without Pontryagin's theorems. So, so after getting your degree, you, you come to Cal and you are a, a professor in the nuclear engineering right. department. <clears throat> so, so how do we understand uh, the movement from uh, uh, Berkeley to Washington? Because <laughs> after serving at Cal for almost a decade, you, you decided to move to a new career. Not quite. I uh, took a sabbatical after six years on the faculty, and uh, was fortunate enough to win a uh, White House fellowship, mm. which, uh, of course, took me to Washington for a year. Johnson was president. 
I asked to be assigned to Robert McNamara. Each fellow was assigned to a different department. So I had the pleasure of uh, working with, or at least reporting to, uh, Secretary McNamara. That was an eye-opening experience and showed to me that there's a real place, a real need for uh, people in academia to participate in the in the real world of Washington, D.C. And, and, and to work for McNamara and with his whiz kids must have really been exciting. To say the least, uh, and very rewarding. Uh, those friendships, Johnny Foster being uh, one of them, the former director of Livermore and then the director of defense research and engineering, uh, really took me under his wing and uh, gave me some wonderfully interesting assignments. And so it, it, you wound up staying in Washington and, and going into consulting. I c did come back to Cal, mm -hmm. but shortly, uh, shortly thereafter, I actually retired from the faculty and pursued uh, high-level management consulting in the aerospace industry, as well as some startups that fortunately worked out very well. And, and I always like to ask my guests uh, what they see as the skills and temperament uh, involved in the work they do. So, so you are both a scientist, uh, you, you're something of a mathematician, uh, and then uh, uh, you, you wound up doing consulting work and, and wa working on policy in Washington. So, so what's the answer there? What, what, what did you learn in the process of these different vocations, and, and what skills, in retrospect, do you see as really important? It's a good question, Harry. <clears throat> I think what I learned the most uh, at Cal as a professor teaching mostly graduate students was that uh, one should listen. These graduate students are very intelligent people. And their questions and their comments are, uh, are worth it. Furthermore, you don't bluff with graduate students. Just tell it as it is. If you know it, explain it. If you don't know it, say you don't know it and go back and get the answer. That really works in the world of high-level consulting. Uh, these CEOs or vice presidents, they, they want to talk and they want your reaction. They don't need my solution to their problems. They need a sounding board, a way to think through their problems. So that what I learned teaching in graduate school was an enormous help, I found, in the world of consulting. What about crea creativity in that kind of work in policy circles? What, uh, uh, or in, in consulting, in other words, it, is it the interplay of listening and thinking, getting reactions? What, what, what helps you come up with new solutions? Uh, another good question, Harry. Uh, yeah. What's going on, of course, a consultant comes in from the outside, doesn't know the airplane industry or any other industry all that well, certainly not compared to the people that he's advising. But that means uh, I bring in a new way of looking at things so that I could... Uh, be creative in the sense of asking some very stupid questions, but also some questions that they hadn't thought of because they live in their world and I live in mine, and two came together uh, 
quite often very nicely. So as you're in Washington now, the Cold War is still going on. You were something of a a cold warrior, and I don't mean (laughs) that in a pejorative sense, but but in the sense that you you were focused a lot on American security, on uh, defense issues, and you actually were chairman of uh, uh, a scientific committee to examine the vulnerability of, of nuclear weapons. Tell us of our nuclear weapons uh, uh, weapons themselves. Tell us about that role. The uh, Defense Science Board uh, had a number of task forces, but one of the most important was the Vulnerability Task Force, just as you said. That was an assembly of about a dozen top-level physicists. All of us had uh, the right clearances, and we would investigate ways that the Russians might be trying to eliminate our strategic advantage. Uh, We even went so far as to invent ways for the Russians to uh, put us at a disadvantage. And we reported to then Deputy Secretary Packard, who was in the Nixon administration. And some of the ideas that we explored, some of the ideas that came to us through intelligence, uh, were not all that comforting. So over the decade that I chaired this committee, Uh, I became a real cold warrior. I certainly didn't trust the Russians, and I had ample reason to not trust them. So in that sense, I was a preeminent cold warrior. And and to what extent in the consulting job, in this work, Mm -hmm. uh, does the, the mindset of a scientist really enhance your ability to do these, these tasks? That's a I'll stop complimenting you, Harry, but it is a good question. Uh, Science is a very linear way of thinking, A, B, C, D, E. No distractions, so that we would focus on a particular problem and solve it, or at least know the ramifications. we didn't have to factor in all the political aspects of how would he react to that or she react to this. It was strictly scientific thinking and then, of course, good expression afterwards. Uh, time passes and you uh, wind mm. up joining the Clinton administration. How, how did you come to work for the Defense Department Uh, under President Clinton and then Secretary Perry? Uh, In the course of this consulting, and certainly with the uh, Vulnerability Task Force, I met Bill Perry. Uh, Dr. Perry was the Undersecretary for Acquisition in the Carter administration, and when that administration came to an end, uh, Dr. Perry began building his team, waiting for the next Democratic presidency. He had to wait quite a while, but I was a member of that team. I didn't know it, Mm. but uh, Bill was recruiting people to work with him if and when a Democrat became president. So a sort of shadow government. A shadow government, very good way to put it, and very good people. John Deutsch, Paul Kaminsky, Ash Carter, they were all Without knowing it, we were all on the team, which meant that when we 
uh, initiated our efforts in the Clinton administration, we were on the ground running. We knew each other. We trusted each other. We knew our spheres of uh, intelligence, accuracy. It was a good start. And, and so you, you, when you took an appointment uh, in the Clinton administration, <clears throat> what was your official title? You were an assistant secretary for? Defense for nuclear, chemical, and biological defense systems, weapons of mass destruction. It was a uh, wonderful portfolio. It included uh, responsibility for the safety and security of the nuclear stockpile, except for those weapons in control of the commanders, uh, destruction of our own chemical weapons through the Nunn-Lugar program, which I hope we discuss, uh, the Russian chemical weapons, uh, making sure that we were ready for biological warfare if it came. And as time went on, Dr. Perry asked me to take on things like counterproliferation to, um, because of the spread, possible spread of nuclear weapons, et cetera. Uh, as one of my deputies put it, it was a very eclectic portfolio. So uh, yeah. time passes and <laughs> comes 1989, and we lose our adversary. The Soviet Union uh, collapses. Uh, w w uh, as, a, as a cold warrior, who we will talk about the job you took on in a minute, that you, you had to show flexibility. You had to change your thinking about the world because the paradigm had collapsed. The bipolar world was no longer uh, uh, what define the structure of the international system. How did you adjust mentally <laughs> before we talk about the project you undertook? Well, first of all, it wasn't an adjustment. It was a 180-degree turn. Mm -hmm. That's where the uh, deep reading in Russian culture came to the fore. Uh, granted, I didn't like what the Russians could do to us during the Cold War, but I also was well aware of their history and literature. I uh, certainly knew uh, how many Wehrmacht divisions they held down on the Eastern Front during World War II. Uh, I had little difficulty pulling that 180 and uh, deciding that it was my job to help this highly cultured uh, community, country, uh, find a new way in the world. They had a lot more problems than, than I had. But you're absolutely right. I reversed direction. And, and, and I'm, uh, you know, there, there, there was a debate in the country, and some would argue one of the factions uh, <clears throat> swarming around, argue, uh, around Washington at this time would say, kick them when they're down. You know, uh, uh, boast about winning the Cold War and so on. So, so, what in your background do you think, what we've discussed thus far, made you uh, flexible? Was it, as you just said, just the, the steep uh, learning uh, about what Russia was <clears throat> without communism? Uh, both aspects, the cold warrior and the, the, the uncold warrior, uh, came into play. Uh, I've already covered the a high regard for Russian culture. Yeah. But I also was well aware that they still had their nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. They had their missiles. And that uh, 
anarchy, chaos in the former Soviet Union, in Russia, <clears throat> could devastate the world. So that uh, I was strongly uh, motivated to do whatever could be done to bring stability to uh, Russia, help them in any way we could to make sure that they could control the formidable uh, weapons that they had created. So at, at this time in the Congress generates a bipartisan notion uh, about what can be done in the context yeah. of a collapsing Soviet Union with nuclear weapons and so on. And uh, one yeah. of the, the Perry uh, colleagues or associates, Ash Carter, who uh, was, at, was at Harvard and then in Washington, uh, had an idea. And what was that idea? Uh, Professor Carter mm -hmm. uh, decided that it was in America's best interest to use our money and our know-how to cooperatively, and I underline cooperatively, help the Russians uh, dismantle their, their arsenal, which they and we no longer needed. Ash, was, Ash Carter was uh, very effective in convincing Senator Nunn, Democrat, Chairman of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, and Richard Lugar, Republican, Chairman of the uh, Ranking Minority of the Foreign, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, to uh, put together a bill that would allow U.S. dollars to be used with the approval of the Russian government to uh, stabilize their, uh, their arsenal in this new era when we were certainly not enemies, maybe not friends yet, but certainly uh, we needed to cooperate. So, so you're talking about a very different Washington. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. You, 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 we, we've used the word idea. Uh, this is a good idea. Let's do something about it. And we're talking bipartisanship. Yes. Uh, so it, but it's not just two senators. They're able to, to work it through the Congress. Absolutely. And get, yeah, and get it signed by uh, uh, the president. That's right. And, of course, there were the equivalents to Nguyen and Lugar in the House that had to do the same thing. Yeah. And this legislation was signed by uh, President Bush? Yes. Yeah. President H.W. H.W. Bush. Yes. Right, right. And, and that was in... Uh, that was, well, it was late in the Bush administration. And, and so <clears throat> what was the name of, of the, uh, the baby that was delivered <laughs> by this uh, 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 very different Congress and, and uh, Washington uh, uh, world at that time? The Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, also Ash's idea. And, of course, we quickly used the acronym CTR, Cooperative Threat Reduction and, and <clears throat> again, the, the idea was to act responsibly to help the Soviet Union deal with a problem. And, and interestingly enough, to do this was both in America's national interest, for reasons that you just described, but it was also in the, the interest of uh, international security, in addition to the Russian interest. That's exactly right. I couldn't put it better, Harry. And, and so, so this, so in a way, uh, this is a world in which uh, U.S. foreign and defense policy 
still is motivated in the way that it was motivated with the Marshall Plan. Do something good for the world that's in our national interest and that will bring world security. We often uh, modestly refer to it as our little Marshall Plan. And in a very real sense, as you point out, that's exactly what it was. Uh, so when the Clinton administration came in, uh, it, it, it was given the agenda of, of implementing uh, this project. And there are a lot of, of key actors here that we, we need to really <laughs> emphasize. The most important probably being uh, now Secretary of Defense uh, Perry, actually. And, and what, what were his talents that he brought to this endeavor uh, that made it happen beyond picking you to run the program? <laughs> well, he picked the right people. Yeah. We've already covered yeah. that. Uh, Secretary Perry uh, had to take on some extremely difficult bureaucratic tasks. In the Bush administration, uh, then Secretary Cheney H.W. Uh, uh, Bush, yes. H.W. Bush uh, didn't spend any of the money for good reason. Nunn and Lugar were only able to appropriate money. They weren't able to, pardon me, they were only able to authorize expenditures. They weren't able to appropriate, which is consistent with the committees that they chaired or were on. So that the Pentagon could spend the money but they had to find it somewhere else in the Pentagon. Those are bureaucratic, that's a bureaucratic problem of the first order. And Mr. Cheney, late in the administration, decided to uh, not take that one on. And I have to assume that President Bush agreed with him. Bill Perry was cut from a different cloth, and it was the beginning of a new administration. Bill took on those battles, found the money, and therefore then could, in essence, put it in my portfolio to carry out the program. And he had to take this money from some of the services. That's right, who have their own connections to the Hill, to the White House, to the press. Uh, one of Bill's many talents is his soft-spoken ways, so that by any standard, these are grandiose battles within the Pentagon. But yet, the public, uh, I don't think... Uh, heard about it. I don't think the uh, chiefs went to the White House. Uh, there was a lot of trust between uh, Secretary Perry and the, the Pentagon's bureaucracy. And, and he, uh, in, in terms of command and control, if we can use those terms, <laughs> he, he saw the importance of centralizing this effort where? Uh, very good question. Uh, ordinarily programs like this that involve foreign affairs, uh, budgetary considerations, certainly the military. Uh, those problems are traditionally managed by the National Security Council because it brings together the various forces of, uh, of government. But that's not the way to run a fast-moving program. Uh, so Bill effectively uh, took the management away from the NSC and put it right in the Pentagon so that uh, Ash Carter, who by that time was the Assistant Secretary for Defense for Policy, Ash wrote the uh, 
policy of what should be done. Bill approved it, and it was my job to implement that policy, all within the Pentagon. It was a masterful job of uh, bureaucratic uh, management. And, and were, were you all prepped to do this because of the work of the shadow government that we had talked earlier? I mean, was this, in addition to Ash's idea, was this something that was part of a, an agenda uh, or did it only happen once you had the, the strings of power? I think we were prepared to take on the task, but I don't think we had thought through the task. So we were really starting from scratch. It was uh, so, hard going. So, so you, you had to assemble and deploy a team. And this is a team that uh, <clears throat> draws on the best expertise of uh, uh, the American government, especially uh, the Pentagon and other uh, security-related <clears throat> agencies and so on. So, so how, how did you define the problem, basically? I mean, this is a big thing to be thrown on your desk, and you have an $8 billion budget to work with. Well, $8 billion over 10 years. Over 10 years, right. But I had uh, well over half a billion that uh, had beginning. to be allocated yeah, adequately. Yeah. Uh, one of the agencies that reported to me was then called the Defense Nuclear Agency. It's now called the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. But I had to turn to them to uh, negotiate contracts with entities, whether American or Russian, to uh, carry out the tasks that policy said we should carry out, dismantling missiles, moving warheads, etc. Uh, I went to that agency and explained that uh, this was not dealing with uh, American industry. They were going to be dealing with uh, Russian industry and bureaucracies. And remember, Russia had essentially a command economy, not a market economy. So there was never great need in the Russian sphere to uh, know what things cost. Uh, price didn't matter. Production was what counted. So uh, the program managers who were uh, ordinary, well, not ordinary, extraordinary, <laughs> but they are bureaucrats. They're government servants. They uh, had to master how you negotiate with something where you have all the money and they have all the products that are going to be operated on. And they want to get as much of your money as possible, and we want to dismantle as many of their weapons as we could. Mm -hmm. That's an altogether different way of writing contracts than... Uh, Ordinary. So, so you, uh, when <clears throat> when I've heard you talk about this before uh, in a recent lecture at IGS, really it, it, it's about building a team. And let, let me walk you briefly through the elements because there were individuals who really mattered. So from intelligence, you got uh, a, a general, a major general, who, who basically uh, really uh, knew the Soviets as well as you did in the security field. Yes, there are a lot of uh, unsung heroes here. One of them are, some of them, of course, are the 
bureaucrats that negotiated the contracts. Another group is, are they prime contractors of the United States? Bechtel was a good example. Mm -hmm. Experienced in major projects all over the world, plenty of language expertise, et cetera. They had to uh, report to me on how the money was being spent, and yet they had to hire Russian subcontractors in a society that was unfortunately uh, renowned for corruption. Mm -hmm. And to their credit, they, the prime contractors that we used uh, never lost a penny and in practically every case did a very fine job. Whether you measure it by production, or in this case dismantlement, accidents, etc. So the uh, prime contractors U.S. Uh, really deserve a heavy round of applause here. And, and this was at a time, uh, this is ancient history, because this was a time when uh, the American government uh, could do things in a non-corrupt way and get the project done. Uh, that, that's just a, an editorial point that I'm making. <laughs> but it's and, accurate. It, it's accurate and, and in retrospect very impressive because apparently that hasn't been our experience you know, in, in the recent wars that we fought. But talk about some of these individuals. So Major General uh, uh, LaJoy was really important, and he came from the CIA. Well, Roland was, Roland LaJoy is the key to success. I mean, granted, Ash ran policy, I implemented the program, but it was LaJoy who was responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the program, and he did an absolutely magnificent job. He's an Army officer, ROTC. Uh, he was fluent in Russian, so fluent that uh, in my presence he could banter with the Russians. So he had a good sense of uh, what they were saying. Uh, when I first met General LaJoy, he was the top man in the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, for uh, advising the director mm -hmm. on matters Russian or Soviet then. And the Russians knew it. But Roland was retiring about the time I came into office and noted that he was retiring. And I turned the Pentagon upside down to uh, make sure we hired him, and we did. He is the man who deserves, I think, most of the credit for the success of the program. But, but your interpreter uh, <laughs> was also important, Nahanov. Nahanov? Irene Nahanov. And, and she was important because she served as both a, a PR person, but also a person who could work Russian uh, culture and enhance your standing vis-a-vis -vis the Russians because of your, your Russian uh, uh, side agenda uh, throughout your career of learning about Russia, its history, and its literature. Very well put. Uh, she was a publicist, and in side conversations where I wasn't present, she made sure that they knew that I had uh, read War and Peace twice, I had used Pontryagin's theorems, that uh, I was well-read and well-read on Russian music. I appreciated deeply the Russian role in World War II. She just absolutely enhanced my reputation as a person the Russians could trust. At the same time, she proved to them that she was trustworthy, 
And anecdotally, the way to demonstrate that is that she had telephone numbers for every Russian official with whom we were dealing that uh, she could use and get them at any time of the day or night, and we did. And I should add that this idea of their trust of uh, Irene Nahanov also uh, pertains to, Ro to Roland LaJoy. Even though he had spent his life, his career, in intelligence, the Russians came to trust him very much. And also important on the Russian side was your counterpart, uh, General Maslin, yes. uh, who, who essentially had a similar kind of role, being in charge of uh, mm. the, the non-active nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union controlled. That's right. I'll, before I take on that question, Harry, one more point about uh, uh, Nahanov. She, in addition to being a publicist, fine interpreter, quite often the Russians would have her interpret both sides of the uh, conversation. Mm. But the, uh, where she showed her skills as a diplomat was when the negotiations got intense, and they frequently did. She would, at some point, interrupt and say, Dr. Smith, tell the Russians about Natalia. Mm -hmm. I said, good idea, Irene, please do, since I couldn't tell the story. And she would uh, tell the story of our first child, who was born shortly after I read War and Peace, and we christened her Natalia for the heroine of War and Peace. Well, when a talented woman tells this endearing story, Tensions relaxed, faces were no longer stressed, the negotiations proceeded. And she did this time and time again in uh, just the right way, just the right time. She was a great negotiating tool. <coughs> uh, but now I should return to General Maslin. Maslin's portfolio was the 12th GUMO, and that's a Russian acronym. But essentially, he had the same responsibilities to his government as I had to mine in the world of nuclear weapons. I had other responsibilities. But every weapon that was not in the care of a commander, that is, on alert, uh, was his responsibility. And Maslin uh, had to therefore move all the tactical war nuclear warheads after the fall, of, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He had to move those weapons back to Russia, which he did as fast as possible and without any American assistance. But that left, of course, all the strategic weapons, the weapons that could reach the United States, uh, still there in Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan. He was responsible uh, to work with the Americans to get those weapons back, dismantle the missiles, defuel the uh, engines that had been built, make sure the weapons got to uh, storage sites where they could be secure. That was his responsibility. And, and both, interestingly here, a, a great deal of trust was built between you and him. <laughs> and some of that trust was built by the the extent to which each side sensed the uh, importance of culture to the Russian nation, 
to to world culture and so on. So so he was a man who appreciated world art. You were a man who appreciated uh, Russian culture and Russian literature. You, there were exchanges in which, <laughs> on his side, he would he took you to the battlefield uh, uh, in War and Peace uh, and to museums and the ballet. On your side, working with uh, our former Chancellor Heyman, who was now head of the Smithsonian Institute, you arranged for him to tour American uh, cultural uh, centers and so on. And so that that was very important to cementing uh, the security aspects. It certainly was, Harry, and you put it very well. Um, just one anecdote, perhaps? Yes. Uh, Maslin treated me to the tour of Borodino, yeah. and uh, it was a, it was, he was well done. I wanted to make sure I could respond in kind, and so I called uh, Teresa Heyman, Chancellor Heyman's wife, and asked Teresa if she'd like to do her bit for national security. She was quite effective in managing aspects of the National Gallery. And uh, I noted for her that General Maslin, who grew up in St. Petersburg and spent many, many hours in the Hermitage, uh, was well-read in the French Impressionists. And Teresa said, why, of course. And so one evening, uh, we assembled, Nahanov, myself, General Maslin, and Philip Conansby, the curator for the Smithsonian, for the National Gallery, uh, on French Impressionists. And it was a strange band. It was late at night, and uh, uh, you could hear our footsteps echoing in this empty gallery. And Conansby was very careful. He began his... Uh, lecture to General Maslin, who was dressed in full military regalia at my insistence. And what was uh, Maslin's question? Uh, well, Conansby said, uh, General, the uh, French Impressionists were French, uh, and they were painting in the uh, late 19th century. Uh, Maslin, of course, knew all that, but Conansby wasn't going to make a mistake. Maslin asked a very sensible question. And uh, Conansby quickly figured out that he had to ratchet up the... Uh, and so he did. He pointed out some rather subtle things about the French Impressionists. Maslin said, I understand, but then he had another question. And very shortly, the conversation was beyond me, but it was two aficionados of French Impressionism discussing it, and it went very, very well. It ended... Uh, when uh, General Maslin had a question for uh, Conan, Mr. Conansby, Dr. Conansby, he said, uh, uh, Philip being his first name, I uh, don't see any Sinyaks here in the gallery. And Conansby was crushed mm -hmm. because there are none, or at least were none. Mm -hmm. He said, alas, General, we have none such. Mm. Maslin smiled knowingly, a little sadly, said, we do. <laughs> so, uh, in the end, the program uh, accomplished an awful lot. And let me just list some of the By things. By the way, Harry, I should add, General LeJoy's opinion was that that exchange of culture, particularly the night in the National Gallery, uh, was a turning point. From that point on, 
Maslin trusted the Americans, and of course we trusted him. I just wanted to make sure that. And and so <coughs> uh, and and in the end, you accomplished an awful lot. Let me just go over. You removed all the strategic warheads and vehicles from Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. You enabled Russia to meet the conditions of START One signed by Gorbachev and Bush in 1991, and you set the stage for further START treaty talks. And the most important for you, you built 24 secure storage sites and trained the personnel who manned them, and there has been none worthy of the, there had been no security sites before your program. So, in essence, you achieved an awful lot that made our world today more secure. I think so. And w one of the reasons I'm most pleased that you bring up these security sites is that there's a lot of photos of looking into empty silos or blowing up silos or dismantling rocket engines, uh, real photo ops. Uh, I doubt that the press has ever shown the uh, 24, I think, think, uh, security sites that we built. And that was a, absolutely key in a world where nuclear terrorism was on the rise. Uh, the Russian weapons had to be, sh granted, put in secure sites. They had them all over the place. They were padlocked, so to speak. But we installed multi-fencing security cameras personnel reliable, reliability programs to make sure that the guards weren't on drugs or alcohol. Uh, all the things necessary to keep those weapons, which we had laboriously, we the Russians and anymore, brought together, make sure they stayed there. The theft of one, two, or three nuclear weapons in the hands of extremists uh, would have cause enormous damage in this world. We're living in a very different world today. Looking back on this extraordinary <clears throat> achievement, what, what do you see as the lessons learned that, that you could pass on to the next generation? Uh, excellent question. The, uh, the first thing, of course, is what I, by chance, was able to do myself. That is, know the culture know how they're thinking. Uh, if you can learn the language, so much the better. Russian is a tall order, but you've got to know the, the feelings of the people with whom you're dealing. Uh, more to that point, we learned how to put ourselves in the Russian shoes so that we knew when we were offending them and avoided those situations. Uh, that was probably the number one, that's probably the number one characteristic. You might say it all started here at Cal when uh, I learned how to uh, listen to what graduate students said, and I learned later how to listen to what CEOs and vice presidents had to say. So it's a sense of, it's antenna, uh, reading how the other guy feels. That was I'd say the major reason that so much trust built up between us. And, and it's important to emphasize that, that all of these uh, uh, mm. cultural aspects, history and, uh, and, and art and so on, 
scientific exchanges, which are apparent in, in the work that you did uh, uh, citing a, a Russian uh, uh, mathematician, they, they bring out the mutual respect and a sense of the dignity of the other that makes the cooperation possible. Is that fair? Not only fair, but well put. Yeah. Eloquent. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, <clears throat> in the end, what, what's gone wrong, do you think, in today's world? Uh, there are obviously different leaders. Uh, the Russia has done things that uh, appear to not be appropriate, according to our definition of international and national security. Uh, have we made mistakes? We made, uh, yes, we made mistakes, and, and so did the Russians. Uh, what disappeared because of those uh, mistakes is trust. Today, no one would accuse President Trump or President uh, Putin of being paragons of, of honesty and trust. And uh, we've paid a heavy price for that. And we made mistakes even in the Clinton administration. Uh, the one I'm most aware of was the decision to expand NATO. And that's a clear case of not thinking through how the other guy feels. Suddenly, his satellites are on the other side of what uh, George Kennan has called the, the new Cold War, the new Iron Curtain. Uh, the Pentagon fought that decision very hard. Uh, Dr. Perry didn't need any convincing that we should postpone uh, expanding NATO. He made that clear to President Clinton, and uh, the president said he disagreed. Bill asked for a meeting of the uh, National Security Council and made his case there. Strangely enough, Lake and uh, Christopher Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor were silent, but uh, Vice President Gore felt that we could uh, handle this. I, I think he was wrong. I think it misjudged the uh, Russian reaction. Uh, so we lost. We expanded NATO. Uh, whereas I think we could have built on the trust that we developed something to act on. Actually, Vladimir Putin's mention uh, early 2000s that uh, Russia would consider being part of NATO. Well, we missed that train. Now, that's not to say that the Russians didn't make mistakes. <laughs> Annexing Crimea and uh, causing trouble in Ukraine, etc. One, one final uh, comment here. Uh, you called your lecture at IGS uh, on this program, A Moment in Time. Yes. And at the end of your lecture, you mentioned a gift from uh, the Russian general, uh, 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 which I guess had, had been a top-secret book before <laughs> he gave it to you, but there was an inscription. And uh, uh, he had written in the, the inscription, East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet, was the, the quote from Kipling but you went and checked the source, and, and there was more to that. Well, and if you look at the frontispiece of the book, which yeah. I want to add was declassified yeah. by the time I got it, uh, there's an inscription at the top of the frontispiece, 
in handwriting, mm. but it's Russian. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Irene Nahanoff translated it for me, and it's what you might expect to Dr. Harold Smith with appreciation, etc. That was heartfelt. But below that, in English, in the same hand, it's not to say it was necessarily Maslin's hand, but in the same hand is East is East, and never the twain shall meet. But what most of us don't know is that that particular stanza ends with, there is neither border nor breed nor birth that shall... I have it here, if you uh, would like. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, but there is neither east nor west border, nor breed nor birth, when two strong men stand face to face, though they come from the ends of the earth. That's Thank you, Harry. <laughs> You'd think I'd remember it, but uh, that's a metaphorical compliment of the first order, and Dr. Perry and I uh, agreed uh, in writing that this was a, a, a wonderful way to summarize the trust that had built up between uh, Maslin and Smith, Russia and the United States, and now, alas, uh, that trust is gone. I think we're going to have to wait for a new generation of leaders and try again to build uh, uh, the kind of relationship that would make the two nuclear superpowers cooperate as we did then in the future. Uh, looking back, one final question. Looking back at your intellectual journey, uh, <laughs> is there one important lesson for you uh, that, that made this great achievement possible and, and your participation in it? Well, of course, it's uh, uh, keep reading, keep studying, keep searching for uh, new solutions to today's problems. They all happened to come to the fore when I was at the Pentagon. And, 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 and if you're a scientist, don't just focus on the math. <laughs> but a, a, as an aside, read the literature of whatever country you're going to have to deal with. Very true. We all should be uh, Weltvolk as General Maslin was. He was a military man who knew the French Impressionists. In my case, I was a reader of history who happened to be a scientist. Well, on that note, Harold, I want to thank you for, for taking the time, coming on our program and, and uh, reviewing uh, this uh, remarkable achievement uh, when the West could talk to the East and with a, a very effective result. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. It's a great pleasure to tell this tale. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.